Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Matt Clifford, co-founder and CEO at Entrepreneur First, on prioritizing technical talent to build the companies of the future. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, and today I'm with Matt. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, it's great to be uh, on the podcast. So who are you, Matt? (laughs) So yeah, my name is Matt Clifford. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Entrepreneur First. There's a lot in that title. So tell (laughs) us, what is Entrepreneur First? I'm curious. Sure. So Entrepreneur First is a new way of building technology companies. I mean by that Ah. is, in some ways, Entrepreneur First looks like an accelerator, but it has a very key difference that we think makes all the difference, which is we don't typically accept applications from companies to join our program. In fact, every company that we invest in is built from scratch at Entrepreneur First. I show up, but I don't have any idea who my team will be. But do I have to have an idea of what I want to build? Yeah, it's a little bit more selective than showing up, uh, fortunately or <laughs> unfortunately, course. depending on your perspective. But um, yeah, so what we do is we focus on attracting Europe's top technical individuals, pre-company, usually pre-team, often but not always pre-idea. And what we do is we spend six months with them working very intensively to help them build their company. And that is like genuinely end-to-end. So as I say, if you start pre-team, pre-idea, uh, entrepreneur first... We'll help you build the company by finding co-founders from within our program. Uh, We'll help you develop the idea. We'll help you build the first product. We'll help you get to market. And then crucially, we'll help you raise funding to be able to kind of build and grow that company. Uh, And all the way through that process, we're investing relatively small amounts of money in order to help you pay the rent (laughs) and uh, eat (laughs) and important things like that during the six months. Uh, so, so it's really kind of company building plus investment. You say pre-ID. So do you also kind of help drive the ID and say, and say again, take my example, to find in my brain the actual ID that could be interesting? Do you have any ways of doing that? Yeah, it's a really important question. So when we say pre-idea, what we actually mean, that's kind of a shorthand. What we actually mean is when we select individuals, we're not using their idea as a filter for selection. So if we thought someone was totally awesome, you know, extremely strong technically, extremely determined, extremely ambitious, we would select them to join our program, even if we actually thought their idea was pretty terrible. And (laughs) so when I say pre-idea, almost everyone who joins Entrepreneur First has an idea of sorts, or at least an area of interest, an area of focus. And what we really do is we help them by having them spend time with each other and talk about their interests and areas of focus, gradually refine those areas until they become ideas. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like... Yeah, it uh, does. Absolutely. And then a key key part of how that works is that um, one other big differentiator of Entrepreneur First compared to a lot of other accelerators is we don't do this kind of high-scale mentoring that a lot of uh, programs do. So if you go on a lot of programs and look on their websites, obviously talking about accelerators that focus post-company usually, but nevertheless, the model's similar. You'd often see like 150 mentors' photos and they'll come in at various points. We don't do that at Entrepreneur First because we don't think it really fits with our model. Instead, what we do is we have five venture partners who are all entrepreneurs and investors who built and exit businesses. And when you join EF, you're assigned a venture partner who works with you week in, week out, same person every week. 
And over time, what they're doing is they're working with you with their view of the market and what works and what they see not work to refine your kind of area until you kind of really have something that's very um, valuable, both as a business and fundable as a, as a startup by the end of the six months. That raises two questions for me. First, if I pick up what you said uh, a minute ago, you said uh, strong technical skills. Does it mean that the people you want to attract are mostly with a background of engineering, or do you also accept people who might have a, just a business background? Yeah, so 90, this is another big, big difference. Uh, lots of big differences. 95% um, plus the people that join us have a technical background, which typically means computer science or engineering background. One of our big themes, I guess one of our big theses, you know, why we built the company, why we built the fund that we have is we really believe that one thing that Europe needs more of is people with strong technical backgrounds being CEOs, not just CTOs. You know, I think sometimes in Europe, we have this problem that we're like, oh, let's put the tech guys in a back room and, you know, they can build stuff and we can, you know, kind of hide them from the world. That is the exact opposite of our approach at Entrepreneur First. We, we always say that no one ever told Bill Gates that he needed a business guy. Uh, and uh, <laughs> So trick question, do you have a technical background yourself? <laughs> um, I always say certainly not strong enough to go on EF. Um, um, <laughs> No, I, had a, I had a rather idiosyncratic academic journey. Uh, I, I actually started um, in probably the least technical field imaginable, which was medieval history, um, but, uh, and then made, a, I suppose, what you would call in the startup world a very hard pivot. Uh, in that I ended up studying statistics at MIT, which was a pretty brutal pivot as well in terms of my own uh, oh, wow. uh, development. But uh, during that, you know, I, um, being at MIT, everything is computational. So, um, you know, there's a, a good deal of uh, programming in that, but I'm absolutely not a developer or a computer scientist. And you went to McKinsey afterwards. I did, right? yeah. You're laying out all my guilty secrets. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. I have to. It's funny. <laughs> I always joke that, I, you know, however long I do Entrepreneur First and however successful we are, people always say, oh, yeah, ex McKinsey. Um, as a, <laughs> uh, I, I joke that, you know, it's a little bit like if I'd had a paper round as a teenager and people say, ex paper round boy, Matt Clifford <laughs> starts company. No, the, um, no, but there's a reason I'm asking that is because I know from your bio that you've been focusing on certain areas of interest whilst you were at McKinsey. Yeah, that's right. Meaning the, the follow-up question is, do you focus on also a very particular area of his interest at EF, you or EF in general, or do you yeah. fund any kind of IDs? Yeah, no, it's um, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, no, I mean, just briefly on McKinsey, I mean, it was – it was a fantastic training for me and for Alice, my co-founder. We, we met there, and um, I think it was helpful for many reasons. And at risk of sounding facetious, one of them was, I suppose, teaching us that we didn't want to be consultants. And um, uh, I mean that in the general sense of not wanting to be one step away from the action. And actually, I think I'll just dwell on that for a moment because I think it's a really important point. Again, in Europe, around our ecosystem, I think a lot of people look at the startup ecosystem in Europe and say, "Oh, you know, we need more capital, or you know, we need more mentors, or all these things." And for us, actually, the answer has always been you need more talent and, you know, I suppose, frankly, better talent coming into the system. And what we mean by that is that a big challenge in Europe is that if you look at what has been the default way for ambitious people to make money and become powerful uh, in the UK, for many, many years, it's been go into financial and professional services. You know, like that's how people Absolutely. make money. And actually, I always say if you compare a typical Stanford grad to a typical Imperial College grad, 
the difference is not what they know or how smart they are. It's what they assume they should do with their lives. There's this great Absolutely. stat that I was told. Narrative, really, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, I was told this stat recently by a senior uh, computer science professor at Imperial who told me that in 2011, which was the year that we started Entrepreneur First, 65%, I think, of their computer science grads went into finance. And now that's oh, about wow. 10%. There's you know, a huge cultural sea change in that time, which is fantastic. So the reason I'm saying all this is I think a really important trend for Europe is ambitious people saying, I don't want to be one step away from the action being an advisor or a banker. I actually want to be hands dirty, you know, kind of in things and, and building. Anyway, to answer your actual question, um, we do have some areas of focus, but typically we think of those as horizontal areas, as in technology types, rather than vertical areas like fintech or um, health tech or whatever. So we're really, really interested in the way that Certain technologies that have emerged very strongly in the last you know, four years have actually come to have a very rapid and radical impact on a whole range of industries. Uh, I suppose the most obvious example would be machine learning and other approaches to artificial intelligence. And that's become a big part of, of what we're interested in at EF. And you know, we've now made probably almost a dozen investments in, in that space. And obviously, we see that having an impact across a huge range of sectors. You know, in our own portfolio, everything from insurance to video, machine learning is, 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 changing, is changing the way those industries do business. I think other technologies that we're very interested in are infrastructure and developer tools, you know, the rise of containers and what that's doing to that sector. Uh, we're very interested in Bitcoin and other applications of the blockchain and the kind of I think it's still actually quite early there, but the impact that will have. Very interested in what we call advanced graphics, by which we mean augmented VR. and virtual reality and, yeah. and other things. Um, again, feels super early, but like it's going to have a big impact. And, you know, actually beyond that, it constantly surprises us what people bring to the program and want to do. So, you know, if we'd had this conversation six months ago, I probably wouldn't have mentioned hardware and embedded systems. But when I look at the current cohort, the fifth cohort, actually, it feels like, you know, probably 25, 30% of people are doing some sort of hardware or sensor or embedded system type approach to, to solving problems. You, you just mentioned fifth cohort. So yeah. how many companies were built out of your program already? Yeah, so we, we're currently going through a pretty large, at least by our standards, scaling up. So our first program began in September 2012, and about 30 individuals joined that, and they teamed up in various ways, and they ended up building 11 companies. And then we repeated it a year later, roughly similar scale. I think it was 30 individuals ended up building nine companies. And then we got a little bit bigger with our third cohort, and that was uh, just under 50 individuals. And I think we ended up with 16 companies. And then we did a smaller cohort again in spring this year. And I think we had 30 individuals and nine companies. And then the big one, the fifth one, uh, which will be the norm from now on, is 90 individuals in the fifth cohort. And the sixth one in March and the seventh one in September will both be 100 individuals. So it's really great, oh, wow. very fast. So I think we have now... 40 something companies in the portfolio but that will we will double that in the next year alone so um it's uh wow. growing pretty fast well congratulations so you really are some kind of talent pool because you really seem to be focused on the skills i guess it's probably because and you kind of mentioned that with embedded hardware is that ids change so fast that you'd rather focus on the skills and then see what actually is brought to the table what i was really interested about is all the areas of focus you mentioned seem to be very deep tech and deep tech, the, the hard bit with deep tech is actually to commercialize it. So can you tell us a little bit more about how do you go on commercializing? How do you get to find a customer for these guys? Do you have them find customers? How do you train them maybe to talk to customers? I mean, these type of things. It's how do you go around that? Totally. Yeah. So I suppose we have a few reflections on that. I mean, I suppose 
and you know we, we use that phrase too we, we very much see ourselves as like you know the deep tech program and you know we okay. we hope that people know us for that and you know we, we think that kind of resonates with the people that we want to work with the entrepreneurs we want to work with i mean i think a big part of our proposition you know we talked earlier about business co-founders one of the ways that we describe what we do is you know we're your temporary business co-founder um you know we, we don't stick around and we certainly don't take a third of the equity um uh, we take a, a a much smaller stake but you know we, for that first six months we want to train you to think like a CEO. We want to train you to think commercially. And now that doesn't mean that you'll never need any other commercial people again, obviously, and you know, people will hire for that um, after their seed round. But a big part of the venture partner's jobs that I was describing before is to really drill in the kind of commercial discipline to the program. One of the ironies of Entrepreneur First, which I'd say I think alumni look back on and say that's one of the most valuable things, is that although we recruit people largely on the basis of their technical skill, we actually strongly discourage people from spending all their time building technology when they're with us. In fact, we would say that we trust them to build the tech so much that we would much rather that they spend their time entrepreneur first getting out and actually talking to customers. And so all the kind of KPIs that we give people during the program, the kind of weekly goals, which is how, how it works, it's very much around this weekly rhythm of setting ambitious goals and then seeing whether you can meet them. All of that is driven by the commercials, like who actually wants this? Are they going to pay for it? How much and when? Now, these are the key questions that Entrepreneur First teams just get drilled into them every well, week. All, all, all startups should think about that, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think the temptation is the deeper the tech that you have to assume that that's not going to be a problem. Oh, the tech's so amazing, it will sell itself. Then you end up being an R&D lab and you know, VCs absolutely. do not invest in R&D labs. Absolutely. <laughs> you're, preaching, you're preaching my message. That's exactly what we spend our time talking about. So I think one thing I would add just on how we help a little bit is... Over the last four years, I think we've built a pretty strong network of corporate partners who actually are interested in seeing deep technology at the very earliest stages. So they're interested in actually looking at stuff at the startup phase. Now, maybe they're not going to suddenly become full-blown customers, but in terms of us like helping our founders get to the point where they have a commercial proposition, uh, a big part of that which is the chicken and egg problem, I think, for a lot of technology founders is, well, how do I find out what people want without having something to show them to ask whether it's what they want? And, you know, that's a tension. And we've tried to kind of, you know, shortcut that for people by having a network where people are actually willing to like look at and test things pretty early, certainly much earlier than I think people would be possible without that network. It's a big predicament. How do you build a partnership with corporates? I mean, you help them, but I'm sure you must have seen a lot of stuff happening with the companies that came out of your program, trying to build partnership with the corporates. Do you have any lessons, tips or stuff that, you know, seen that always fails or always succeeds, maybe? <laughs> uh, I'd say it's not always easy. <laughs> In fact, I would say it's never easy. Um, I would actually say the most important thing is, is realism and, and scoping. A lot of the challenges that we've seen, having done this, you know, kind of a couple of dozen times is, is actually this mismatch between the expectations of the startup and the corporate on timing, on process, on outcomes, on economics. And in a way, that mismatch is very predictable. But I think for some founders, the instinct is to leave resolving those to the last possible moment on the basis that maybe something <laughs> will, you know, work itself out. And actually, in our experience, even if it kills the deal, it's much better to actually have those on the table in the first meeting and try and get to a point where it's clear what a good outcome would be for both sides. Because, well, it's like any sales process, you know, the key isn't to push people to the next step. The key is to qualify people and, and push them to the next step. And I think a lot of founders, at least in our experience, can, it's so exciting when someone seems to be interested in your product and in your vision. 
that that can push you to interpret as traction something that's actually curiosity. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. So I think realism and scoping from the very beginning is, is you know, the key to the whole thing. Uh, are you venture-baked yourself? So we, we're structured like a venture fund. So we, we have okay. our own fund. There's a concept called the venture customers. Absolutely. You know, these are yeah. type of companies that, because of their dynamic, will be keen to look at very early stage type of IDs. Is that something that you also see? Absolutely, yeah. So um, that's a phrase we use more and more over the last couple of years, this idea of a venture customer. So the idea being that actually sometimes it's much more valuable to have a, a check that's a you know, purchase order from a big corporate than it is to have a check even from a, a VC. I think the key there, I mean, we, we've found that can be hugely successful and that having a, an existing relationship and an existing network facilitates that massively. So we actually have a formal corporate partnership program at Entrepreneur First, which is pretty small right now, partly because it's not our absolute kind of core business. Our core business is building the companies, but we have five or six companies we work with very closely on a, on a partnership basis who want to see stuff early, want to buy technology early, willing to take risks, have worked out within their own organization how to make that work. Where that does work, it's hugely powerful. We've had a, a good example would be you know Sky, the, the media company, you know, had a long relationship with Sky and being able to get EF companies in front of Sky very early on in their life cycle. Frankly, way earlier than could plausibly be interesting to Sky as a you know as an investment or an acquisition or anything. But it's, it's because I think the people there that we work with understand the value of actually knowing what's happening at the cutting edge really early and actually can help our companies refine the propositions to make it commercially viable. And that's very, very, very powerful, I think. I want to go back to skills because one of the big problems that developers, it's not only in Europe, but it's everywhere. It's uh, how do you build a value proposition? You see a lot of startups say, I have a hard time hiring good developers because, uh, and I'll put it very simply, it's a bit maybe too simplistic. Oh, they, they want to work for Google. So how do you as well as EF or through your the companies that you've built, how do you solve that problem? How do you make it so attractive that they won't work for Google? Yeah. And nothing against Google, guys, by the way. No, no, no nor have I, although I'm laughing because um, we, uh, we have a recruitment poster that says, uh, if you're good enough to work at Google, don't. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's facetious. We have a good relationship with, with, you know, with lots of people at Google. Google have been very helpful to us over the years. But, you know, I, I didn't think the, the truth is, and uh, I think this would be broadly acknowledged that Google has probably done a better job than nearly any other organization of its size of remaining attractive as a kind of cool place to work. But it is a company of 50,000 people and there are thereabouts. And, you know, that does create trade-offs. You know, I think the value proposition that we're trying to create at AEF is not competing with Google and Facebook and Palantir and others on, on cash, obviously, um, but really <laughs> talking about a risk of sounding cheesy, we're kind of a unique moment in human history. You know, this is probably the best time in the history of the world to start a technology company. You've never had more opportunity to scale, more people can be reached. You've never had fewer startup costs in terms of infrastructure. And, um, you know, the rise of open source has made a huge impact there. You've never had more building blocks to use that other people have created that you can, you know, kind of get started with. And so really, you know, I think we're going to, people who, think maybe one day I will, are going to look back at this moment and say, this was actually an extraordinary moment to, to build a technology company. And so, you know, I always think of that thing that Jeff Bezos said about starting Amazon, which is that he was working on a regret minimization framework. And um, I think this is an idea that actually really resonates with the kind of people that we want 
to come and join Entrepreneur First to start companies, which is obviously you could go work at Google, you could go work at Facebook. But in a way, the fact that you could is exactly the reason why you shouldn't in that if you have that as a backup plan, how bad can it be? And actually on that regret minimization model, you know, if not now, when? Yeah. I think, you know, for some people that message doesn't resonate and that's fine because in a way they're probably not the people who should be building companies. But I think actually the, the value proposition is pretty clear for those who, who do. The other valuable lesson you must have once you've selected the right skill is that to combine the skills together. And that's another big predicament for a lot of startups and also companies is how do we create strong technical teams? Mm. So do you have any ideas on that? I'm sure you have a lot of experience. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a slight digression, but when we started Entrepreneur First, I guess the number one bit of feedback we got was, it's impossible to build teams from scratch. You shouldn't try, go do something else. Um, and I think that's fair enough <laughs> um, in that I think at the time that all the conventional wisdom in venture capital from many years of people doing a bunch of different approaches said that was true. I guess the way we, and you know, because we've now built 50 companies from scratch and kind of seen many more iterations, permutations not work out, I feel we've probably got an almost unique perspective on that kind of team building phase. I think what we would say, is a couple of things. One is that if you think about what the kind of lean startup movement has told us about ideas, it's striking to us how much of that is actually applicable to teams. So the idea that you start with a hypothesis which you kind of commit to, but you're willing to let go of if the evidence suggests that it's not going to work, you can actually apply that in the right environment. And I think Entrepreneur First is the right environment. You can apply that logic to teams. So, you know, when I look at the teams that have come out of EF and done extremely well, there's almost no correlation between how well they do post-demo day and how and when in our program they met and formed. So actually, most people do cycle through teams at Entrepreneur First before they find the right one, which is really interesting because it's, they go through that process exactly the way that we push them through the ideas process. So, you know, we say, <laughs> we, you know, I think the intuition that people have is teams are like marriage. So, you know, you should really play the field, get to know everyone, work out who you click with, and then double down on them and, you know, commit. I actually think that's, and that's, t- to be totally honest, that's how we approached it in year one when we were starting out. That's how we assumed that you should do it. I think what we've learned is that the opposite is true. You know, you can't do speed dating for teams. In fact, you have to, same as Lean Startup, start with a bold hypothesis about why you might want to work with together. You know, do you have a shared set of interests? Do you have complementary skills, whatever? And then just go all in as though you were going to do it forever and then see where you are in two weeks. And one of our mantras at EF is productivity is traction for teams. There's no such thing as a good team that's not productive. To a first approximation, there's no such thing as a team that's productive that isn't good. Maybe slightly less true, but close enough. And so what we say is what we want you to do is go all in on the team that you first use for a couple of weeks, set yourself a really ambitious goal and see if you can achieve it. And if you can, it's worth keeping going and doing the next, you know, next two weeks. And you keep doing that until you're ready to say, actually, you know what? Yeah, this really works. Um, so you really are on a, a like two-week cycle, at least at the beginning. Yeah, for the first couple of months. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, so basically, what you're telling me here is that you cannot really create productivity out of thin air. It's really like a meeting of the, the right persons together that suddenly kind of blossoms. Yeah. It, right? Our view is you can probably move the needle a little bit around the edges, but the kind of actually productivity is probably an intrinsic quality of a team, but it's also an emergent quality. As in, you can't sit down and interview people and be like, yeah, you're going to be a great team. You just have to watch them and see what happens. So basically, you created that EF, almost like a cultural norm of saying, 
it's okay that you kind of made, sorry to use that bad word, for two weeks. And then, you know what? It doesn't work. It doesn't seem to leading anywhere. Just move on until you actually find the right match. That's absolutely right. So, and, and you've really, that's exactly the phrase we would use. So for us, so much of why Entrepreneur First works, when everyone, including us probably, didn't really expect it to work quite so well, is the cultural norm around saying, I'm in a trusted group of people who I know have been through the same selection process as me. I know they're as smart as me. I know they're as committed as me. You know, they're not going to go to a different job on Monday morning. They've, they've signed up for six months of this. And I know that if it doesn't work out with this first person, there are other opportunities. What that does, and you know, I would like to say we'd predicted this, but it's more just emerged and you know, it's great. It, it creates a norm where I think people are willing to go all in on a possible team and see if it works. And if not, they're willing to step back and no one takes great offense from that. They just kind of move on. And so you actually get this, um, we have this concept at Entrepreneur First, which we call founder liquidity. Um, and what we mean by that is if we select 100 people at any one time, there are going to be people who are between teams or who are you know, exploring something on their own. And actually, one of the amazing things about getting 100 truly exceptional people together in a room is that the number of permutations so far exceeds what any human can like test in their heads that really surprising and unusual combinations happen that turn out to work. And as long as you have enough of that liquidity, you actually create a, an environment and a culture and a set of norms in which that can really flourish. Do you see that uh, now that some companies have, have spun out of you, do you see that these kind of norms being still alive in the companies? Meaning, do they stay with that kind of very lean approach to people as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the short answer is, I think so. And I suppose my evidence for that would be, it's remarkable to me, maybe it's obvious, but how many of them hire entrepreneur first alumni as their first, second, third, fourth hires? One of the kind of accidental services that we've ended up providing for our portfolio and for our alumni is a pool of 100 amazing uh, technologists uh, every six months, some of whom won't work out for first time and they'll want to go and work somewhere exciting and high growth and they end up hiring these people and they already know them and they trust them and they've been through the same, you know, kind of quite intense process, you know, this baptism of fire. And so I think obviously every company develops its own culture, which is uniquely theirs, but I'd like to think there is a little bit of EFDNA in, uh, in all of them. Yeah. So DNA evolves so, so from medieval history for you to today. Do you think that you've nailed the approach now or do you see EF evolving in the next two, three, four years? Oh, I mean, I think constant process of evolutions. I mean, when I think back to using my own kind of journey as an analogy, as you've suggested, you know, when I was 12 years old, I decided I didn't want to get a Saturday job. So I started a little business uh, fix, building and fixing computers for like friends of my parents. And then I kind of got into Visual Basic, um, which I think is like the kind of classic uh, mid-90s um, learn to program experience. And then I got into making websites. And then suddenly did this, you know, hard pivot into history and then a hard pivot back into stats. And, you know, I, I think one thing I've drawn from this whole experience is that, you know, you it's worth being somewhat opportunistic and it's worth being constantly open to iteration. I mean, I'd like to think that where Entrepreneur First is now is we have been very opportunistic over the last four years. We've taken the company in places that we didn't necessarily expect. Uh, certainly, it's changed hugely since the first iteration back in 2011. But we now feel it's at a point where the engine kind of works. And it really is now about repeating and scaling that kind of core engine. 
However, what you also see as you scale that engine is that creates a whole host of other both opportunities and challenges that, that need to be addressed. Uh, there's a huge challenge as we scale around next stage funding. So, you know, there's a ton of seed capital in London, which is great. But equally, we've just increased, you know, at least threefold, maybe fourfold the number of teams that we're producing. And the big thing that I spend my time worrying about is how do I make sure they all get the funding they need when they leave the F? So I think we'll be running some kind of major new projects around that in 2016. I think a second thing is you start to think, well, what talent pools aren't we tapping into? I think we've got really, really good at tapping into extremely technically talented individuals in Europe. But then you start to think about other pools of talent geographically, other pools of talent by skill set, other pools of talent by age. And you start to say, well, maybe actually there are opportunities here as well that we could explore. So um, 2016 will be a big year for us. And I, I think we'll have some exciting announcements then on software day. Well, good luck. Thank you so much, Matt, for today. That was really exciting. And good luck for the rest. Thanks so much. It was great to be uh, on the show.